inaugural lecture after become a member of the faculty of the Oriental Institute and the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations. And I want to uh, give you a little bit of his background. Uh, Robert Whitner <clears throat> came to Chicago, I believe, first in 1977. And between 77 and 79, he held a university fellowship in the Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations. And then, um, as he was still in training, he became uh, an essential lecturer in the NELC, in the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations, from 1983 until 1990. During that time, he lectured on practically every Egyptological subject that we teach here. He lectured on Old Egyptian, Middle Egyptian, Coptic, Hieratic, just about everything that we teach. So he was our all-purpose, multi-talented lecturer. And we probably stole him to do that. You know how people do exploit students. He received... He also um, lectured and taught in continuing studies courses, including some here at the Oriel Institute and some at the Field Museum. Maybe some of you were his students in those courses. <clears throat> he, during the same period, he uh, was an organizer and an associate editor on a number of publications. Uh, he was working uh, as a research associate and associate editor of the Demonic Dictionary under Jan Johnson's directorship, and he continues to work on the Demonic Dictionary. In 1987, Robert received his PhD from the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations with honors. Um, and then, after a year, he went to Yale University where he occupied the Marilyn M. Simpson Assistant Professor of Egyptology Chair. He was there from 1991 until 19, until today, until this, until this very year. We drew him back to the Oriental Institute to become a member of our faculty, and we are truly delighted to have him here. He is, um, I hesitate to say, a young scholar. He is young, but his work is that of a fully mature scholar. Uh, he has publications which he began early in his career. In fact, he, his first publication appeared in 1976, just after he graduated from Rice University with a major uh, in psychology. And um, he switched from that to Egyptology, a natural transition, as any of you would certainly know. <laughs> Since that time, since that 1976 article, he has published more than 50 uh, articles, chapters, reviews. Uh, he has written on a, a multitude of subjects, language, history, literature. But most important of all of the topics that he has addressed are those having to do with religion and with magic in its ancient Egyptian setting. Tonight, well, not tonight, I'm sorry. The book that he is going to, he has, he has, he has, he has he's written a book which is a, an Oriental Institute bestseller. We don't have very many bestsellers, but we'd sold out the first printing of, of Robert's book, and we had to reprint it, and tonight he has volunteered to stay for a while uh, after the lecture uh, to autograph copies of those of you who would like to buy the book. The book is called The Mechanisms of Ancient Egyptian Magical Practice, and it really has been a wonderful bestseller for the Oriental Institute. The subject of tonight's lecture is Seven Brides with Seven Stingers, 
The Scorpion Wives of Horace. I give you Robert Whitner. Thank you very much, Dr. Sumner. It is very much of a pleasure to return to the Oriental Institute and to this stage. I feel a particular kinship with the Institute, not only from my uh, long presence here, I actually came in 1977, which is a uh, shuddering uh, notion to think about. But um, I have just moved from Yale. My All my personal possessions arrived last week, so I am living amid boxes stacked above my head, so that when I come to work here and see the museum, I actually feel right at home. <laughs> Now, Oriental Institute members are surely familiar with the major figures of Egyptian mythology. Osiris, Isis, and their son, the falcon god Horus. Perhaps less well known is the fact that our knowledge of these central figures, whether major or even minor figures, is very rarely based on lengthy mythological narratives, completely unlike the situation with Greek mythology. Whether this is a result of chance finds or simply the Egyptians' preference for explaining their gods in different ways, I can't answer, although I lean to the, to the second interpretation. But at any rate, our best information instead is often pieced together, sometimes quite laboriously, from references and allusions in ritual texts, which, as Bill mentioned, have been my primary focus of research for well over a decade now. Those ritual texts which are designated or designed for private rather than state purposes have generally been designated as magical texts. Though as I have insisted in my book, in various writings and lectures, these are in no way less authentic or even less official than public rituals because they were composed by the same priestly theologians who wrote the temple liturgies. So that it is in these magical texts that we often find brief mythological episodes that are styled historioli by historians of religion. All that means is little stories. And these recount a mythological episode which serves as a precedent for the purpose of a spell. In other words, if you have a headache, you describe a mythological event in which a god had a headache and then you too will be cured just as the god was cured. You recite the spell to bring about the precedent that it had once had in the divine sphere. Uh, the recitation of relevant biblical passages in times of crises or blessing is a comparable practice in medieval and even modern Judeo-Christian traditions. Tonight, I shall present a tale of one of the most important of the Egyptian gods, the central falcon god Horus, but it is an all but forgotten myth, reconstructed from a series of magical texts with tantalizing mythic episodes, tantalizing and quite often frustrating. Most visitors to any Egyptian section of a museum will have seen the canopic jars used in mummification. And if you read the labels, it will tell you that these are related to the sons of Horus. Well, if there are sons of Horus, is a legitimate question to ask, who is the wife of Horus? Or, put another way, who are the wives of Horus? And moreover, what is his relationship with her or them? This is the investigation of the evening, and it is necessarily a presentation of adult themes. <clears throat> a tale of sex and violence, 
cross-species mating and a series of marriage nights gone terribly, terribly wrong. <laughs> Could have the first slide. <laughs> to begin this discussion, I'm going to show you one of the most unpromising texts I have ever looked at in my entire life. And this is what is known as the Philina papyrus. It is reconstructed from two pieces, as you see, uh, joined here. This papyrus is 10 centimeters by 8.2 centimeters, if you straighten it out. That means it's about this big. I sat down with my paper and uh, scissors this afternoon. The initial editor had only this section to work with. It was published in 1901, and he said that this scrap was of use only for paleographical studies. It had no inherent value except to examine the style of the writing. Actually, this little papyrus, which is a set of magical spells in Greek, has been published probably more than any other Greek magical text, which are much, much longer. In fact, it has been studied in print 13 times. My discussion will be number 14. Uh, this is uh, perhaps a comment on the perversity of scholars, but the reason for the sudden interest in this seemingly worthless scrap was the discovery in 1942 that there was an adjoining piece here in the Berlin collection. The left-hand side was from the Lord Amherst collection, which is now in Manhattan. The right-hand side is in Berlin. And although this had been pointed out in publications number two and number three, ignored in number four and number five, scholar number six, Mr. Moss, noted that they, noted that they were not just parallel interesting texts, but actually joined. Once he put them together, you have two columns of about 21 lines, of which nothing is really preserved of the first column. And you have nothing of the first section of the spell of the, the top. A middle text here, and a third down at the bottom. The text actually derives its name uh, from Mr. Moss because it has the name of the author of one of these magical spells against headache, which is preserved right there, if you can believe it. That is Philines. Uh, the name of a woman of Thessaly who supposedly wrote a spell of headaches, uh, which follows, and which is irrelevant to our topic of discussion tonight. <laughs> the reason is that I want to concentrate exclusively upon spell number two. This is the one that has promoted or prompted all the various discussions of this piece, the, sec the section right in here. And without further ado, let me read to you what it says. Uh, the last official full publication of this text well, actually, uh, the, the primary publication of this text now, if you were to go and look at it, for it, is in the collection of Greek magical papyri, including the demotic spells, edited by Hans-Dieter Betz and a number of individuals, including Jan Johnson, myself. Uh, and this is uh, spell 20 uh, in that group, of, in that collection. The text goes as follows. The incantation of, the name is broken here, a Syrian woman of Gadara for all burns or inflammation, depending on how you translate the text. The initiate son of the most majestic goddess was burned. And on the highest mountain or desert, the word is oros, which can mean both in Egyptian Greek, uh, he was burned. 
So on the, mount, on the Jebel, we should say. The reason, by the way, why mountain and desert would be the same in Egypt is that you're in a valley. When you stand in the Nile Valley and you look up, it looks like there are mountains up there, which they are from the perspective of the valley. But when you get up there, you discover it's a, fat, a flat desert plain that extends off in both directions. So the Greek that's used in Egypt, as well as the Egyptian that's used in Egypt, uses the word for mountain and desert to be the same. So he was burned on the highest mountain, or desert, and the fire gulped down seven springs of wolves, seven of bears, seven of lions. But seven virgins with dark blue eyes drew water with dark blue urns and quieted the untiring fire. That's it. This is the text that has produced a wide variety of animated discussion. The reason for the sudden interest in this particular spell is first because it is the earliest historiola, earliest little mythological event, in a Greek magical spell that's preserved. This is second century BC. Secondly, the text is partially preserved in yet another document is from the fourth century AD, which means this obviously was a popular spell. This other text comes from Oxyrhynchus in Upper Egypt, uh, and so we know it had a life within Egypt itself over a long period of time. And then Mr. Moss, who published the text and recognized what was going on at the basic events, noted that there was nothing about this spell that had any relationship to Greek mythology. There are seven women in Greek myths. The Pleiades come to mind at once. But they don't carry water, and they don't have anything to do with putting out burns. So if this is not Greek mythology, what is it? The question has, had been left open until publication number eight by Ludwig Kennan of Michigan, who said it, who showed in 1962, or suggested in 1962, that this was, in fact, an Egyptian myth in Greek dress. Now, to explain to you why he might say such a thing, he refers to a whole series of incantations that are attested as early as the 16th century BC and continue on all the way through the Roman period in which the young god Horus is burned in the desert and water is brought to put out the fire. There are a whole series of these. I will read to you a few of them just so that you can get the feel of them and understand that I'm really not trying to pull something over on you. From Papyrus Ebers, which is primarily a medical text, from 1550 BC. Another conjuration for a burn on the first day. Your son Horus is burnt in the desert, talking to Isis. Isis replies, is there water there? There is no water there. But water is in my mouth, and inundation is between my thighs. It is to extinguish the fire that I have come. These words are to be recited over the milk of a woman who has given birth to a male child. Uh, and wool, gum, wool of a ram, and to be placed upon the burn. Here is an image of our Horus, who is uh, getting the curative milk from his mother, the goddess Isis. And in fact, the milk of a woman who had borne a male child becomes a standard ingredient in Egyptian medicine. And if you don't have such a thing, because it's not always available at your local pharmacy, there are actually jugs which are in the shape of the goddess Isis with or without a child on her lap so that you can take milk, pour it in the jug, and when you pour it out again, you have milk of a woman who has born a male child. Now, the interesting thing about that particular in, uh, medical remedy is that it survives into the 17th century in English herbals. So it passes from Egyptian medical terminology into the Hippocratic corpus and then becomes a standard feature in European medicine up till almost this century. Uh, the following spell from the same text says, otherwise said, 
My son Horus is burnt in the desert. This is Isis speaking. There is no water there. I am not there. May you, speaking to an unknown woman, whose identity we leave open for the moment, may you bring water from the banks of the stream to extinguish the fire. Words to be recited over basically the same sort of thing. Milk of a woman who has given birth to a male child. From the London Medical Papyrus, 200 years later, another conjuration for the burn on the first day. Your son Horus is burnt in a place in which there is no water. Isis replies, the usual. Water is in my mouth, an inundation is between my thighs, it is to extinguish the fire that I have come. The following spell is again Isis saying the same thing. My son Horus is burnt in the desert, the same story all over again. So we have this continuation of these same two forms of spells of Horus being injured in the desert and a fluid being brought to him to, to solve the burn. From the roughly the same period of time, example number four, or example number five, from a Leiden papyrus, we have beginning of the conjuration of Burns. Now look, let your face not tremble, my son Horus. My son, have you seen the flame of the Great One? My mouth has water from the bank of the stream. It is in order to extinguish the fire that I have come to, said to, to be set over honey and placed on the burn, etc. You get the basic idea that there is a long-standing series of such texts in which Horus is injured on the desert. Moreover, the discussion of Horus as an initiate, as in the Philena papyrus, makes perfectly good sense. The standard image of Horus throughout most of Egyptian depictions shows Horus in the form of a baby with his finger tucked to his mouth, to his lips. In Egyptian thought, this is to indicate that he's a child and that he's sucking his finger. In the Greco-Roman period, however, this is reinterpreted as the, he is a child who is guarding the secrets and that this is an indication that one is to be silent regarding the mysteries. So that Horus and the image, his image, his standard image, becomes the symbol of the initiate in the Greco-Roman world. Now, I could, go, I could give you many, many more examples. I think you don't need many, many more examples. But just to tell you one or two, from the first century AD, we've now jumped from 1300 BC to first century AD, O Osiris, foremost in the West, happy is your son Horus. He will repeat youthful vigor, and he will rule the deserts with his strong arm. Why is he given authority over the deserts? Because that is where he has been injured, and that is where he will suddenly repeat his vigor and become healthy. And then from the third century AD, well beyond the papyrus I showed you there, we have Horus went up at midday onto the mountain during the season of inundation mounted upon a white horse. He found all the gods seated at the place of judgment, eating the produce of the Nile. They said, Horus, come and eat. Horus, come, are you going to eat? He said, go away from me, because it turns out that he has a terrible, terrible headache and is unable to eat anything at all. He has a burning fever in his head. And so then he is finally calmed when they bring him foodstuffs, etc. So again, the place of his injury is standardly on the mountain from the beginning of the New Kingdom all the way into the, the threshold of the Christian period. And to go further into the Christian period, we have what is perhaps two of the most interesting of these texts. And those are Coptic spells from the 6th to 7th century. And they go as follows. Now originally in the 18th dynasty examples, Horus was burned perhaps from, be from being scorched on the desert. Then that burning sensation is transferred to headache, to fevers, to other things, but the situation is still kept the same. In this text, there is a burning and a fever, but it is of a slightly different nature. Hear Horus crying, hear Horus sighing. 
I am troubled, poured out for seven maidens from the third hour of day until the fourth hour of the night. Not one of them sleeps, not one of them dozes. Isis, his mother, replied to him within the temple with her face toward, turned toward the seven maidens, and the seven maidens then turned toward her face. Horus, why are you crying? And of course, he repeats the same thing exactly. Um, but even if you have not found me, if you have not found my name, O Horus, take a cup with a little water, and you must do the following ritual action. Now, this might seem to be as clear as mud. Uh, Horus is in somehow injured again. He's upset over these seven women. He's again in a desert situation. They are near a fountain. So this ties us rather nicely with the Felina notion of seven maidens with dark eyes who bring water at a fountain. Here is an example of seven maidens, but what on earth is he suffering from? That is explained in the following text, which was written by the same scribe, which goes, I found seven maidens who were sitting upon a spring of water, I being Horus. I desired, but they did not desire. I agreed, but they did not agree. I desired to love, fill in the blank of the person you desire, but she did not desire to receive my kiss. I strengthened myself, I stood up, I cried, I sighed until the tears of my eyes covered the soles of my feet. So then he remonstrates with the goddess Isis, and she goes on to say that, uh, what's the matter with you? He repeats the story all over again, and finally it ends with, I desire that so-and-so, the daughter of so-and-so, spend 40 days and 40 nights hanging on me like a bitch for a dog, like a sow for a boar, for I am one who calls and you are the one who must desire. The burning sensation that Horus feels now is the burning pangs of love. He burning pangs of fire of love for these women, these seven women who sit near springs, who are presumably the seven suitors of Horus, or the one who Horus is anxious to meet. Now, in a, so then, if we have this explanation that Horus is burnt on the desert, and there is this very late example which actually brings in seven women, it would seem to add together rather nicely. How do we explain the other elements in that nine-line poem? The initiate is burnt on the desert. We have seven women involved with it and adjacent to springs. Who are the seven women? The Kunin explanation is that the seven women represent the seven mouths of the Nile, who then bring the refreshing Nile waters to put out the fire, and that the fountains, which are mentioned, that are gulped down by the fire, correspond to animals in Egyptian mythology as understood in the Greco-Roman period, so that the seven springs of wolves are associated with Anubis or Wepwawit, who is the jackal god of the desert, which makes sense in a desert setting, that the bear is the, associated with the god Seth in Greco-Roman mythology. Uh, the reason for this is fairly complicated. Uh, Seth attacked Osiris by striking him with his, his foreleg in the form of a bull. It was sliced off, thrown into the heavens, and became the Big Dipper. Uh, in Greek understanding, that Big Dipper is a bear. So from the Greek point of view, the bull and, the, and Seth are a bear. So that links, and, and Seth is the god of desert and oases. And finally, the lions, this is associated with both Shu and Tefnut, but also primarily with temple water spouts. If you go to any major temple in Egypt now, you will see lions projecting off, and these are the ones which gush forth water, so those all fit. They can be understood within the framework of Greco-Roman interpretations of these animals and springs and desert sources. Now, this is the way the matter stood from 1962 until 1995. 
when Chris Farone of our religion department reanalyzed the text and produced, I think, a series of rather significant objections to the interpretation made by Koonin. The most important of these is to note that the link with the seven mouths of the Nile is rather weak. There are not, to my knowledge, ever, there's not to my knowledge a mention of the seven mouths of the Nile in Egyptian texts. The mouths of the Nile are mentioned, but they are not given that specific number, and those mouths varied in number over time. There are not seven mouths of the Nile at the moment. Uh, however, the other elements were, Chris did not attack the question of the springs, but he did mention who are these women, and he says that there are parallels in healing rituals from another Near Eastern culture that help explain three puzzling details in the Greek spell that find no corollary in the mother and child stories which I've just given you the examples of. The use of the number seven, the young age and unmarried status of the maidens, in the Greek text they're said to be virgins, Parthenos, and the peculiar blue color of their water jugs. The jugs with which they draw water are said to be kuanos. We'll get back to that. And so he suggests that what we have here is not an Egyptian spell at all after the mention of Horus in line one, but instead is Mesopotamian. And he draws in a series of texts studied by the Oriental Institute, by Walter Farber here, the Manam Lushpur series, Whom Shall I Send? And these texts, to give you just two examples of how these go, uh, if you have a, a problem of one sort or another, you invoke this, the daughters of Ea or Anu. Earth, they say, was just earth, then it bore morass, morass bore stalk, stalk bore ergot, in it, they say, the square field of Inlil, sin reaped 70 acres of field, had Shumash gathered the yield, into, they say, the eye of the young man, the ergot entered. This is an explanation of how a sty came to be in your eye. Then it continues with a formula which becomes standardized and is repeated from the beginning of the second millennium through the first millennium. Whom should I send with orders to the seven plus seven daughters of Anu? May they take the agubu vessel of carnelian, the pot of kulalu stone. May they draw pure seawater. May they remove the sty from the eye of the young man. So what he is saying is that we have here a combination of Egyptian and Mesopotamian motifs. And he gives several examples of this sort of formula. There's a problem, however, ultimately, I think, with Faraoni's interpretation. Uh, I should mention one other thing. He, he associates then the seven women with the seven plus seven daughters of Anu. He says this explains their unmarried status and, it, and their, their pots, which are sometimes said to be of lapis lazuli, explains the blue color in the Greek papyrus. Unfortunately, by my addition, the daughters of Anu are seven plus seven, which is 14, not seven. There is nothing in any of the Mesopotamian texts which stresses their unmarried nature. They are merely called daughters of Ea and Anu, and our knowledge of their mythology is, is fairly weak. And moreover, their pots are not always made of lapis lazuli. They may be made of various different objects as well. It's only statistically the larger number turn out to be lapis lazuli. Uh, and they're all fairly early with respect to our spell under discussion. So the question is, must we, with Pharaone, look outside of Egypt for these seven women who were associated with Horus and burning and blue pots? And to answer that, I think we don't have to go outside of Egypt. This, by the way, is the Coptic text that I just read to you, which gives us our clue as where we should go. 
because there is clearly in Egyptian records an example of seven women associated with Horus. It's in this Coptic text. But is it something that's merely a late formation that might come from the Philina text of seven women, or does it represent an authentic Egyptian antecedent? I would argue for the former, and the reason is in an unlikely source, and you're looking at it here. The question here is who is it that Horus is enamored of, and the, act, and the answer from a variety of sources is the scorpion. We've known uh, for a number of years that there are entities who are referred to in magical texts as the wives of Horus, and these are scorpion goddesses. The scorpion is a persistent problem in ancient Egypt, as in modern Egypt, a threat. One generally sees it as an enemy, can be warded off by an amulet, or here, a piece from the Oriental Institute from mummy cartonnage, placed underneath the foot of the mummy, so that when you stand it up, you're literally grinding it under your feet. This is not a, uh, a symbol of love and attraction. Moreover, Horus is regularly associated with these scorpions uh, on texts which are known as Chippy of Horus, in which, as you see here, uh, he's actually clutching a scorpion by its tail, along with serpents, and throttling them. And this reason for the existence of these uh, little steely, which functioned like uh, St. Christopher amulets, was to protect you against scorpion bite when you might travel or even in your home. Uh, you could pour water on them and they would cure you of scorpion bite. But Horace's interest in these particular scorpions, where he clutches them and is shown with them, is not entirely one of, con of destructive control and is actually amatory in some respects. Because we can recreate from the Egyptian myths as excerpted and referred to in bits and fragments, a series of references to Horus's wedding night, or series of nights, with the wives of Horus. We've known that they existed, but the question has been how many of them are there, who are they, and what is their story? Uh, earlier studies have suggested that they were innumerable and that virtually any scorpion could be called, or any scorpion goddess could be called the wife of, of Horus. If one actually goes through carefully the text, you discover that there are, in fact, precisely seven of them. Their names are Sepertuines, she to whom one petitions, Yifdet, she who runs, Wepet Sepu, she who judges misdeeds, Sephed Sepu, she who slaughters misdeeds, Metemet Nefert I don't have any idea what the first part of that means, but the last half means beautiful when she comes, Beche, which is at this point untranslatable, and Tabbechet, which seems to be part Egyptian and part Canaanite, meaning the daughter. The, the first reference or probably implication uh, of applied reference to these uh, deities occurs already in the Middle Kingdom on a coffin text, where we read in text 284, O so-and-so you are Horus, who belongs to the great lady of the desert, the lady of the flame, the great lady who is between the horns of the shining disk, who bites with her mouth and who strikes with her tail, a reference probably to a scorpion. From Dynasty 18, we find our first attestation of the name of one of these goddesses, Sepertuines, and it is interesting to note in context that this Philina papyrus is written supposedly by a woman from Syria, that our earliest attestation of this name is in a magical text which is partially in Northwest Semitic and partially in Egyptian. It has clearly been composed abroad and adapted with Egyptian and Amorite or Phoenician elements. And after a recitation to Rabunai, my lord, 
in Phoenician, it goes on, it is not so-and-so, fill in your name, but I, the daughter of Sepertuanes, the daughter of my lord, the governess who recites. So you attack this various illness by claiming that you are the scorpion goddess. But proof that there are, in fact, seven of these comes from a spell from the reign of Ramses II. It's a slightly broken hymn, but I will read it to you, which is a spell against scorpion bite. Flow forth, O scorpion, you whose back is long and whose joints are many, whom Sepertuanes has repelled. Since she is the goddess of scorpions, or one of the goddess of scorpions, she can control their poison. And then we have a poem and a refrain of seven verses. Come, go forth at the, at the statement of Sepertuanes, the wife of Horus. Behold, I am Horus, the doctor who soothes the god. Flow forth from the limbs. That's number one. Come, go forth from the statement of Tabichet, wife of Horus. Behold, etc. Go forth from the limbs. Come, go forth from the statement of Iftet, wife of Horus, etc. And we have this repeated for each of the seven names, and we have precisely seven verses, which tell us then that we have seven scorpion goddesses. And we actually have a depiction of these seven scorpion goddesses on magical texts, such as this stela, uh, uh, this statue, curative statue of Horus, a Jedhor, the savior or reciter, which contains, again, one of these anti-scorpion texts. You pour water on it, it gathers here in the, va the, the basin, and you drink this for cure. But on his right shoulder is a depiction of the seven scorpions who are directly associated then with Horus. They can even be taken collectively as a group. The seven different entities become one so that from the same text, the same Ramesid spell we have, behold, it is not I who recite for you, it is Sephet Sephech, which is to say the seven slayers who recites for you just as she recites for Horus. Here the seven have been gathered together as a group and made into one. If we go further in the same text, we begin to get our first references to the actual mythological event. To make a long story relatively short, what seems to happen is that Horus becomes enamored of these scorpions. He leaps upon them. They do not take this kindly. And he consequently is stung in the shoulders while lying atop the scorpion. He is in pain. He burns. This takes place in a desert. He is burning in the desert. There are seven of these women. He does this seven times. This experience happens seven times. They are forced to then pr provide their magical name and produce magical fluids to put out the fire. It is this that I am suggesting that is the origin of the seven women in the Philena papyrus who have a burning Horus on their hands in the desert. Um, for example, from this text, come, recite, recite by the statement of Sepertuanes, to whom the earth remains, the first incorporation of the sun god, when she tells her name to Horus for three years. So apparently this curative process is prolonged. With blood hidden in her thighs since Horus opened her, deflowered her. Come to me, extract these ills that are in the body of, fill in the patient's name, fill in his mother's name, just as Horus went to his mother Isis on the night when he was bitten. That's Sepertuanes's experience, goddess number one. Goddess number two. We have her statement, again, I tell you, we have to piece these together from unlikely places. Uh, there is a healing statue, which is found outside of Cairo, uh, in this area, which was for a caravan 
stop, uh, a statue of King Ramses III, which is inscribed with a whole series of magical curative spells, just like those little chippy of Horus. Here, this is a royal donation, so people going to and from Egypt on their way to the east could stop and have a prophylactic cure against scorpion bite on their way, or perhaps cure any scorpion bite that they've had thus far. Among the various myths that are recounted, we have a reference to, again, the deflowering of Tabichet, the scorpion wife of Horus. Spell for enchanting scorpions. O mistress, high-bearing one, who has come forth from Heliopolis, daughter of the Nimus headdress, without my even mentioning Sepertuanus, she to whom the earth petitions. Recite, pray for this young Horus, that he might go off recovered to his mother by the blood of Tabichet, since Horus opened her in the evening. Seal the mouth of every reptile, O Tabichet, shining of face, O so-and-so, wife of Horus. This is addressed to the individual scorpion. Whichever scorpion bites you is also, by extension, a wife of Horus. May Horus live being recovered and healthy. The motif is picked up in a variety of other magical texts, little ostraca like this, which is now in Brussels, E3209. Hail to you, Horus, by the blood of Tabichet, whom Horus opened on her bed of ebony. O Bichet, lady of the Uraei, daughter of Perei, I shall chant against her in victory, with a falcon on the right, another on her left, aside from me. Go forth, O Horus. Now you might be wondering what that means by a falcon on her left and a falcon on her right, aside from me. Some of you may have heard the, the talk given by Jillian Fogelsong Eastwood earlier uh, in the summer, I believe, who spoke on uh, clothing found with Tutankhamun. Among these items were some interesting cloth pieces that no one knew initially what these were, but they were in wing forms. You could actually put them over your shoulder, and it looked like falcon wings crossed over your chest. The head of which, of course, is the king, who is the living incarnation of Horus, who is in body of Horus, with another Horus over here, and another Horus over here. What Horus is describing in this text is he is lying on top of Tabichet, who has bitten him and she is bleeding, and she looks up and there is a Horus on her left, there is a Horus on her right, with his two shoulders, in addition to me, Horus, in the middle. The same thing is picked up in another one of these spells, a Chester Beatty papyrus, who says, I was the great one who went forth at night in clothing and with sandals when the great one Horus was bitten on the falcons of his shoulders. These are these same two cloth pieces, and again a direct reference to the scorpion biting him while he leaps on her in her bed of ebony. Now, of course, the injury to Horus in these events, and I don't have examples, and you'll be pleased to know that, for all the other five goddesses, but presumably it worked precisely the same way. Uh, for those of you who want to see, incidentally, the text, this is the same text here as our scorpion goddess right here, uh, the blood of Tabichet, who was, be which is, who, who was being opened. Uh, the injury to Horus is then the same as the injury to any individual person who is bitten by a scorpion, so that you equate yourself with Horus and his fate. Um, for example, on the statue of Ramses III that I mentioned, it says, Come, you evil fluids, which are in the limb of fill in your name, fill in your mother's name, just as you came forth from Bichet, the wife of Horus. She put them in Horus, she pulls them out of Horus again, She's, and she will do the same for you. Uh, from Dynasty 20, Pitor in 1993. As for the night when the wife of Horus bites you, this is referring to any individual patient in Egypt, 
I will not allow the inundation to surge upon the banks. I will not allow sunlight to shine upon the soil, etc., etc. The whole world will come to a screeching halt until you are recovered from the bite. The scorpion goddess curing the patient is also referred to in a variety of these little texts uh, from the same papyrus. Someone approaches me, someone approaches me. It is not I who approach you. It is Wepet Sepu, the wife of Horus. O poisons, come to me. I control them. I am Selket. Now, many of you, anyone who's been to the Tutankhamun exhibit years ago knows Selket, our primary goddess of scorpions, and it has been suggested that all of these various wives of Horus are simply nothing more than images of the, of the goddess Selket taking on different aspects. Um, we'll give you one more example before I show you this, and that is where the whole seven goddesses are summoned together as a group of the wives of Horus to cure the patient. Hail, O scorpion, coming forth from under the tree with its stinger erect, O one who has stung the herdsman in the evening when he was lying down. The seven daughters of Perei, the seven daughters of the sun god, and in the various references I've already given you, the daughters, the scorpion wives are said to be daughters of the sun god, so that fits them, stand lamenting, making seven knots in their seven bands to place them upon the one who was bitten. May he stand up healed for his mother, just as Horus was stood up, healed for his mother Isis on the night when he was bitten. So here we have our seven, go seven goddesses, the daughters of the sun god, who are presumably then these seven scorpion goddesses curing Horus on the night he's bitten. Now these motifs are all early New Kingdom, but they continue throughout the rest of Egyptian history. So that from this particular inscription in the Wadi Halamat, this is again designed for passengers through the desert area to stop and pray if necessary to cure their scorpion bite, and you can perhaps see the scorpion rather nicely here in the hand copy. It's actually abracadabra words which may be Semitic, a spell for enchanting a, a scorpion, kepapu, kepabal, kepatrem, back, go away, O wife of Horus, born of a wife of Horus. That is to say, you're a scorpion born of a scorpion. And finally, from the Ptolemaic period, contemporary with that Greek papyrus, we have this healing statue which belongs to the Oriental Institute and is now on display in the president's uh, house down the street. Uh, top view of it, as you see, much of it is broken away. This would have been a figure covered with magical spells from top to bottom. But on the side, there is, on this side, a fragment of a, of a more, of, of a truly peculiar mythological episode from the lives of the wife of Horus. Because it begins, unfortunately, in a break with a reference to some poison injected into the life of Horus, and we know how this might have happened. But it turns out that there's more complications in his wedding night that someone else has intruded whom we do not know as follows. Now she, we don't know who she is, said before your wife, I went to the bed of Horus and his heart desired me more than you. She caused disturbance within your house and evil upon the heart of your wife. Come then in your power over the sufferer. May you overthrow, may you repel, may you cause her to make confession in all that she has said against you so that there would be rejoicing within your house and joy for Hathor. Let not her raging be against you. May the poison of the one who made your suffering die, that the heart of Bichet, the golden one, the mistress, the wife of Horus, be happy. Now what's interesting about this particular expression is that while obviously now we have a question of further mistresses for Horus, maybe yet more scorpions, I don't know, the uh, Bichet is being made happy, Ta Bichet, but in addition she is equated with Hathor, the golden one. And why this is interesting is because Hathor is the official wife of Horus. Her name means the mansion of Horus. 
Now, if this is somewhat complicated, it is because Egyptian theology regularly does this kind of thing. Um, we're going to find that the images of the wife often relate to the image of the mother. So we will find Hathor is not only acting as the wife of Horus, but she is the mother of Horus as well in certain respects, and this ties in with the Egyptian notion of Kamutef, or the bull of his mother, the one who begets his own self. Uh, we will return to the question of whether these scorpions are, in fact, merely manifestations of Hathor, because, as we will find, we have seven. Because his mother Isis is associated with Selket, they are other forms of each other. In the form of Isis Hedetet, she is Isis the scorpion. You can see her here with various different forms, and one which was published by the Oriental Institute at Beta Wali, formerly in Nubia, now uh, just outside of Aswan. Here is the head. The scorpion is right in there. It may not be very clear. But it's this, it's this image right here that was there. It's the original. And there are these, po these uh, staffs which are carried which show Isis with, incidentally, Hathor crowns, conflating Isis and Hathor yet further, uh, in the form of a scorpion with a female head. But the reason why this is significant in the myth of Horus is that Isis actually appears in company with seven scorpions who form her retinue. And we know this particular myth from the Metternich Stela, now in the Metropolitan Museum in New York, which is another one of these texts designed primarily to cure a scorpion bite. I show you the front with a standard image of Horus throttling the little enemies, and on the back side, uh, far more text and more images, and if we go to a certain section of it, we will see here the episode I'm referring to. Here are our nice seven scorpions. This is a very long spell, just to give you a tiny taste of what happens. This is Isis speaking. I went out at the time of evening, and seven scorpions went out behind me. They took the lead from me. Tefan and Befan were close behind me. Mestet, Mestetef under my palanquin. Pettit, Chetet, and Matet, keeping the road free for me. Now, all of these names are gibberish names, and they are actually formed according to a standard rule of abracadabra speech, known as the Aleph-Beta rule, by which one creates uh, magical names. So that these are not likely to be their real names, but extra special magical names. So these could be our same Sepertuanist, Tabichet, etc., that we've seen elsewhere. Finally, Isis arrives at the house of a married woman. A noble lady saw me from afar, and she closed her doors to me. This annoyed those who were with me, the scorpions. They took counsel about it, and they put their poison together on the tip of the sting of Tefan. And in, as a result, they sting the young child who is there. And as a further result, Isis then calls the seven scorpions, and they have to extract the poison. So there is yet another then said. There's the seven wives of Horus, who are known from one context. There are the seven scorpions who are the associate of Horus's mother, and I suggest they may very well be related. They are probably shown together in images on these incomparable texts. If you go to the side of this stela, on one side, there are more of these mythological depictions and texts. And if you look down on one of the side registers, we get this interesting little example, which is the goddess of pregnancy, who is also a scorpion goddess which might seem rather strange until we notice that their association is not impossible. This is an Oriental Institute piece, uh, which has, again, our goddess of pregnancy and a scorpion. Uh, perhaps the reason for this, the earlier text refers to Horus having encountered the Great One, which could be Taweret, the, the pregnancy goddess. And it may amuse you to know that the other place where 
the scorpion wives are porous, are called into play, is not in burns, but in pregnancy spells. They are asked to officiate in difficult pregnancies, which is perhaps not hard to explain if you are a scorpion who has been impregnated by a falcon. <laughs> One might imagine that there would be a difficult pregnancy. <laughs> And that's exactly where one finds Sepertuinus in Papyrus Leiden 1, 348. She's called, is coming in, this woman is having a difficult labor. Please come in, O scorpion goddess, and do what you can do. And so here they are associated again uh, with the fertility goddess. Now on the other side, we get the, uh, these other set of uh, scorpion goddesses. Again, from our images at the top, I'll show you the drawing here. Uh, and close-ups at the upper register here is probably our goddess Isis, or one of our scorpion goddesses, with, her scorp with just two of her scorpion associates, for lack of space. But down below, we have Isis, we have Horus, and there are the seven culprits. Either associated with the story which is here on the Metternich Stila, or with his other seven wives, assuming that these are even distinct. I suspect that they are, in fact, one and the same. They would explain how Horus came upon them in the first place. They were his mom's uh, troops. Now, further spell, this is not unique. This is another example of one of these healing texts in the Cairo Museum. And to give you a tight close-up, of the lower side. On either side, there is a figure of a scorpion goddess here being worshipped by the person who's uh, put together the stela. But notice the far right-hand side. Here, this figure has a is an Isis figure, has a scorpion between her crown, which has, has a Hathor crown again, and she has hooves. Now, this has been suggested to be a unique image and that perhaps she's in the form of a deer, but I think not. I think that these are the hooves of a hippopotamus, and so that we have yet again the image of Isis with the pregnancy role of the scorpion, previously unexplained. On the back side of this text, we have a direct reference to the Metternich stela and its myth of the seven scorpions over here, because here we have the, the owner petitioning Isis and here, surrounding her, are the scorpions. They could only squeeze in five of the seven, but they have precisely the same names that they had on the Metternich stela, Mestet, Befen, Pefen, Tefen, that whole, that whole group. So, that is our second possible group of seven individuals directly, directly associated with Horus and involved with stings, burns, desert, and fluids. This is the third group. These, this is the only dedication, to my knowledge, surviving for the seven Hathors. This is a these are a group of goddesses who are well known from Egyptian literature. They occur in the doomed prince and the tale of the two brothers as the Egyptian goddesses of fate. They are the figures who gather at the birth of a child and say what his destiny will be. They are first occur in, in uh, descriptions in the New Kingdom, uh, this was originally set up to all seven. We're missing one over here, and we have just the crown of this one. But on the back side, for those of you who want to go along with the hieroglyphs, it's an invocation to the seven Hathors, as you see right here, asking for basic invocation offerings, and further, in their role over fate, he asks that they, that they place the generations remaining before them. 
without anyone saying, I wish that I had something among the people who are beside me daily. So again, their role is to act as guardians of fate. They can give it, they can take it away, and they occur in presence of Horus. The reason being is that Hathor is the official spouse of Horus, certainly in the Ptolemaic period, at her major temple, both at Dendera and his major temple at Edfu. So here I am showing you a scene from the temple of Edfu, showing the birth of Horus' young child, and here are the seven Hathors with the, with the child on their lap. And up here, they appear again playing tambourines. Uh, I know this is rather small, but here's a set from Dendera. Here's the first four of the seven Hathors, and continues with another three, uh, and, another go and the goddess of uh, Lower Egypt over here, leading them on, playing tambourines. So these are yet another set of seven, ha of, of seven women who were, in theory, associated with the god Hathor, I mean, with the, with the god Horus. Uh, and perhaps the clincher that maybe all of these seven are the same is found again on the Metternich stela. If we go back to the back side and the top, in the central image, we have a scorpion goddess here clutching more scorpions and snakes and throttling them. But adjacent to her, we have a goddess who is clutching these scorpions and who has a Hathor sistrum head. So she is Hathor of the scorpions. And as I, if you will recall that I mentioned earlier, that the goddess Tabichet was said to be Hathor when she was happy. So that all of these various sets are perhaps different explanations of the same set of three. And what also may, just may, harken back to the whole image, is an image uh, here of uh, one of the Roman emperors at the Memisi at Dendera offering to the goddess Hathor. And if we look carefully at his clothing, you see something of that image that, I, that uh, Julian Fogelsong spoke of. Here, although here it is slid down from his shoulders down to his waist, there's a, there's a Horus falcon on this side, there's a Horus falcon on this side, of course Horus is in between, but tucked here in the middle, wrapped round by all three of these Horuses, is a little image of Hathor, who is now completely surrounded by Horus falcons, left, right, and center. So then, the question is, we have a, a magical text which describes someone who was burnt in the desert. We have a standard motif of this for all of Egyptian history associated with Horus. There are seven women who, do, who cure, evolve with this pain and cure it. We have three sets of such women in Egyptian mythology who all may be part and parcel of the same set, but certainly there are these three different sets who are possible. The next question is, Farioni questions, what is the status of these women? Because in the Mesopotamian myths, he says, we, they, are, they are said to be unmarried. Except in the Mesopotamian text, they are never said to be unmarried. But their marriage status is absolutely pivotal in the Egyptian texts because it is their initiation on their marriage night that brings about the entire episode. So that the fact that they are virgins is directly critical to the Egyptian text and ties into the Greek spell. But the final thing that's missing is the color blue. Because in the spell it is said that the women draw their water with jugs of what, what has been translated as, as blue jugs. And moreover, the women are said to be blue-eyed. 
The Greek word is kuanos. They are said to be kuanos opidos, uh, blue-eyed, blue-faced, and to draw their jugs of blue. This is generally, the word kuanos, the Greek word, is generally assumed to mean lapis lazuli. If you actually study what kuanos means, however, in Greek texts, you discover that it comes into Greece from linear B and is related as uh, kuanos, and it is related to Hittite, kuanan, and its primary meaning in Greece at the time is not lapis lazuli, it is Egyptian faience. It is the blue-green frit that is used as imitation lapis lazuli, which circulates in Greece and gives rise to this word in Greek, which continues in usage all the way through the Roman period as the primary meaning of kuanos in Greek. So if we go back to that Greek text, rather than saying that these are women who draw their jugs with lapis lazuli pots, we could translate with faience pots, and then we don't have any problem with Egyptian antecedents. We have Egyptian faience bowls, which are used for water. We have ritual bowls like this, or jugs like this, used to pour out water in ritual ceremonies to produce healing and rebirth of the deceased, or for offerings, and further examples like this, or special ritual cups, which were used probably at certain times of the year to recharge health, which are certainly nicely associated with the seven goddesses of fate particularly since Hathor in a cow form is often found on them. And moreover, further examples of beakers, we have every conceivable shape and size and cup, which could be used as a kuanos vessel, which any self-respecting Egyptian goddess could easily get at her local store. And moreover, we have special curative vessels like these, which are New Year's flasks, which almost certainly held Nile water at the beginning of the new year, and they contain a New Year's wish so that as you drink this water, it will restore you from all ills of the previous year. So there is this wide variety of things to choose from. Here's another example of these. They're quite common uh, from the Berlin Museum. And we even have them appearing in sets in seven. This is the uh, set for the seven uh, secret herbs and spices used to mummify individuals here for the sacred oils. And finally, if we can say then that the vessels could be faience, and if we have examples of the seven women who could be using these vessels, the last thing that was never explained was why on earth these women in the Greek text are said to be faience-faced. That is to say, kuano opidos, blue-eyed. Well, it just so happens that in Egyptian representations, they can be blue-eyed because they can be entirely blue, because they can be made of faience. But what is the greatest clincher of all, perhaps, is that in the, one of the primary spells of Tabichet, it specifically addresses her to seal the mouth of every reptile, O Tabichet, because you are Chehen hair, faience faced. Raptor coitus. in some way with the god Horus and probably all different aspects of each other. Moreover, they carry vessels which are standard Egyptian using precisely the word that would have to be used in Egypt to describe the common Egyptian material. You couldn't use any other word. And it even picks up a, a motif that is found specifically describing the scorpion goddesses who are said to be faience-faced. If an Egyptian, seeing this idiom, translated it into Greek, he would have to come up with the very set of words that's found in this text. So perhaps it is worthwhile to go back to little drips and drabs of nine lines, because perhaps one can find interesting myths found within them. Thank you very much.